Well, you guys remember last week when I was talking about uh, the mark of the beast, and we talked about how I, I, I talked to you about uh, applied digital solutions and the digital angel that they came out with. It's all over the internet. Um, well, I got an article this morning. Actually, someone emailed me and. Uh, and showed me this link to the site that talked about the digital angel. Remember I told you how they were just producing it the last week? Well, this Thursday they came out with an article. Uh, it says, uh, Digital Angel Set to Fly Tomorrow. And I want to share this because there are some things about this mark or this uh, chip that they put in you that I wasn't aware of. I didn't, I didn't know it actually did all these things. But it says this, Beginning tomorrow, applied digital solutions will begin beta testing on humans an implant technology capable of allowing users to emit a homing beacon and have vital bodily functions monitored and confirm identity when making e-commerce transactions. You know how we talked about that mark of the beast that wouldn't allow you to buy or sell without that mark. And I said, well, you know, maybe it's this, this digital angel that kind of monitors your body function and you know where you are at all times with the global positioning system. Now I'm understanding a, a big reason for it is to identify you when you're doing e-commerce. You know, any type of commerce over the internet, you know, they can check who's going from the computer and kind of know where you are and know everything about you. It's, it was just pretty interesting. Um, it, it says it's potential for improving individual and e-business security and enhancing the quality of life for millions of people is virtually limitless. Um, and basically, uh, it's going to send a signal from the person wearing the digital angel to either his computer or the merchant from whom he's doing business with in order to identify his uh, or verify his identity. Um, here's a quote. Uh, it says, uh, the, the patent states, the device will bring peace of mind and an increased quality of life for those who use it, for their families, loved ones, and associates who depend on them critically. Now, obviously, we're not the first ones to go, well, that's kind of odd. You know, could that have anything to do with the book of Revelation, the mark you have to take in order to buy or sell? And so they were questioned on that. Uh, there was a question asked, an increasingly cashless society where identity verification is essential for financial transactions some Christians view digital angels' ID and e-commerce applications as a form of the biblical mark of the beast. But then the president, who is uh, Dr. Peter Zhu, um, dismisses such objections to the implant, and he says this. Listen to the quote from the president. I am a Christian, but I don't think that argument makes sense. The purpose of the device is to save your life and to improve the quality of life. There's no connection to the Bible. There are different interpretations of the Bible. My interpretation is anything to improve the quality of life is from God. That's all he had to say. I mean, just crazy. I mean, isn't that interesting? You know, here he is claiming to be a Christian, saying there can't be a connection because it's good. It's going to help people. And anything that helps people has to come from God. That's how we interpret the Bible. But uh, amazing how, you know, Revelation talks about this mark that you can't buy or sell without having it. And, uh, you know, obviously it's going to improve the quality of life in that time for people to identify you and know exactly how much money you have. But uh, I've talked to some of you who say, you know what, these last couple of weeks you've been talking about Satan, talking about the mark of the beast, talking about a lot of stuff. Enough with Satan already. It's freaking me out. Okay, 
And that's good. You know, I mean, it's the end of it. Okay, that was the end, uh, that, that last chapter. And, and chapter 14 really is the total contrast of all that. I mean, I want you to picture in your mind what we've been talking about. Remember, John sees the vision of the red dragon, which represents Satan, and he's chasing the woman that represented Israel. And then uh, chapter 13 has to do with this antichrist and the false prophet in this world kingdom where everyone is receiving this mark and you can't buy or sell without this mark and you're actually being persecuted and killed if you don't have the mark. And so you're seeing all this stuff that's going on in the earth and you're seeing everything that Satan's going to do. But then chapter 14 is an incredible contrast because now John keeps looking in his vision in, verse 14, in chapter 14, verse 1. John says, Well, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Okay, you see a total difference now? Okay, you're looking at the beast and you're looking at everyone worshiping him and the mark of the beast on their foreheads. Now you see Jesus staying on Mount Zion and he's got his people with him. 144,000. Remember we talked about 144,000 in chapter 7? Those were the Jewish believers, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel and they received the mark of God on their heads. So these people are standing with Christ, you know, as the other people with the the 666 on their heads were, were standing with Satan. And it says that uh, they have uh, his father, his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And then listen to what, what happens, because now you get to hear from heaven. This is an incredible scene, verse 2. It says, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Okay. As Jesus is standing on this mountain with 144,000, you know, the 144,000 with the seal of God on their foreheads, it says, then here's the sound coming from heaven. Imagine this. It's a sound that is so loud, it says it's like a rushing river or like thunder. Okay, have you just heard massive thunder or just been near a, a river that was just rushing so loud? I mean, it's majestic. It's huge. It's almost scary at times. But then it says that as that that sound is going, it says the sound is, it's the sound of harpists playing their harps. Okay, can you imagine something so loud, but it's harpists that sound like thunder. It's just like this beautiful thunder that's playing. And uh, and it says that uh, they're singing a song before the throne. Now, who is singing the song? It seems like this is going back to chapter 5. Remember we talked about how there's 100 million angels worshiping Jesus? Picture 100 million angels playing harps and singing to Jesus as Jesus is standing on this mountain surrounded by his 144,000 followers. That's a pretty incredible scene. You know, it's, it's almost like, you know how, uh, you know, when I read chapter 13 and go all the way into 14, 
It's like, you ever watch the beginning of a basketball game? You know, like the finals. When a, and, and the first thing they do is they introduce the opponents, the opposing team. And as each player comes out, everyone's booing, boo, boo, you know, you idiot. You know, they're all yelling. And then suddenly they announce the home team, the good guys. And the whole place, you know, lights go out, you know, and then suddenly spotlights. And the whole place just goes wild. I don't know if you've ever been to the Staples Center, you know, during like a playoff game or something like that. And if you ever get tickets like that, invite your pastor. You know, but uh, it's, in, it's incredible. It's incredible when you're there and you feel the excitement and you're, and you're next to your pastor and you're, you, you just hear just the roar, the excitement, and it's just a rush. Well, when I read this chapter, that's what it feels like to me. You know, for two chapters, you've been hearing about the enemy. You've been hearing about everything that's going on there. But then now you see Jesus Christ standing on the mountain. He has returned. He's got 144,000 with him. There's 100,000 angels playing their harps, singing, worshiping him. It's just an incredible, incredibly magnificent scene. And it describes this 144,000, and it says that these 144,000, they've kept themselves pure. Not like the rest of the world and all those people that are worshiping the Antichrist, this 144,000, it says they've kept themselves pure to the point where that they did not defile themselves with women. Now, it's not just talking about immorality here. I believe it's talking about these people didn't even get married. They even kept away from uh, relationships with women altogether. Now, that is not to say that if you're married, you have defiled yourself with one of those evil women. You know, that is not saying that at all. In fact, God is the one who instituted marriage. It's a very beautiful institution. Um, But do you remember in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul talked about marriage? And uh, he really was talking about the end times when he says, because time is short, those of you who are married should live as though you are not. Um, it's talking about the intensity of the end times. There's going to be so much stuff going on that God just totally be devoted to God. Absolutely devoted to God. And these 144,000 want to be so committed during this end time intensity that they just totally devoted themselves to serving God. And it says that no lie was, was found in their mouths. These guys were just totally honest, totally focused on God. And what I love is in the end of chapter 4, I mean, at the end of verse 4, when it says, they were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Okay, don't miss this picture. Offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. The picture of the first fruit is this. It was a picture of the Old Testament principle of the tithe. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, it talks about how you're supposed to give a tithe to God. The word tithe means 10%. But it wasn't just any 10%. It wasn't, I spend everything I can, and if I have 10% left over, I'll give it to God. The idea of the tithe was always the first 10%. Is the idea of the first fruits. Is whenever the crop, the harvest came in, you would take your best and give it to God and say, God, this belongs to you because I wouldn't have anything without you. The idea of the first fruits was, was the best of your flock. If you had a bunch of animals, you wouldn't give God your leftovers. The diseased animals, you would pick out the best animals you could find and offer those to God. Because those now were your first fruits. See, it's so different from today where we give God our leftovers. Or I shouldn't say we. I should say a lot of believers, you know, give God their leftovers. And, um, and the idea of giving God their leftovers is, well, you know, I spent everything on myself and got a little bit left over. Or I don't have anything left over. I'm in debt because I overspent for myself. And we kind of give God nothing or less than our best. And yet, Scripture never allows for that. 
Scripture has always said, give God your best. And you see what the picture is here? It's saying that these people, this 144,000, are actually like the best of the land. They're taken from among men, from all the people on the earth. God takes this one group of 144,000, and they are given to God like an offering of, this is the best the earth has. From all the people of the earth, these are the first fruits. Isn't that an awesome picture? It's saying, look, here's a group of people who have totally lived for you. They didn't defile themselves. They're not worshiping the Antichrist. They didn't take the mark. They're totally serving you, totally honest people. And they're an offering to you. They're set apart for you. And yes, the truth is, is, that's what you and I should aspire to be today. To say, God, I know what the world is doing and what they say about you, but I'm setting myself apart from them. And I want to be an offering to you. I want to be like the first fruits. I want to be the, the person, the man or the woman of God that just says, you know what, I, I don't buy into that philosophy. I've set myself apart from you. That's what set apart, that, that's what holy means. The word holy means set apart. When God says be holy, that means set yourselves apart. Be separate from me. Be the first fruits. And, and that's the way I pray that Cornerstone Church really becomes, is this pocket of a few thousand people here in this place that says, you know what, I know that the world really doesn't worship you. I know the rest of Simi Valley doesn't really serve you or honor you, but we want to be a group of people that says, you know what, we're not going to buy in to a lot of the sinful things that the rest of the world does. We want to separate ourselves, set ourselves apart for you, and say, look, we're an offering to you, God. I know some of the other churches in town want to do the same thing. We want to set ourselves apart and say, you know what, we are an offering to you, God. And as that's going on, then something pretty intense happens in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Okay, so as that's going on, you've got this scene with Jesus on the mountain and voices from heaven worshiping him, singing to him. Then suddenly an angel flies by in midair, and it says this angel is proclaiming a loud voice and says it is proclaiming the eternal gospel. What does that mean? The eternal gospel. The word gospel means good news. When we say, hey, I want to share the gospel with someone, it's saying, I want to share the good news. What's the good news? The good news is that even though I have totally blown it, I have totally offended God in my life, and I don't know if you've ever done this. You ever uh, sit down, you, you look through your life, and you look at some of the mistakes you've made, some of the things you've done, some of the people you've hurt, and you can just kind of beat yourself up over it, and you just feel terrible. I still do this sometimes. Well, the good news is, is I can put that behind me. The good news is that God says, even though I know that you have done those things, I can still forgive you and I still love you. The good news is that even though I have offended God with my life, he still loves me. And he loved me so much, the Bible said, that he sent his son to die on a cross for me so that he is not going to punish me at the end of my life for what I've done wrong. And I've done some horrible things. 
And many of us have. Things where we look back and go, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I'm going to have to pay for that. And the good news is, no, you don't have to. Jesus paid for that on the cross. And here this angel is proclaiming it to the whole world so that there's no excuse. Everyone will hear the good news. From every tribe, every language, every nation, they're all going to hear it here from this angel who proclaims it. But what does he say? Listen to the the phrase in verse 7. What does this angel scream out in a loud voice? He says, fear God and give him glory. I want you to imagine something. Okay, let's imagine service is over right now, okay? And you're walking out to your car. And as you're walking out to your car, you see an angel in heaven flying by. And this angel screams out, Fear God and give him glory. What would you do? Seriously. You're about to go to your car and you see this angel scream out, Fear God. Give him glory. What would you do at that moment? Would you just kind of say, whatever, and get in your car? I'm going to go about my own life. I'm going to do my own thing. It's not about God. It's about making me happy. I want to make a name for myself. No way. Angel says, fear God. You guys, and understand something. That is a phrase you don't hear in churches very much anymore. Fear God. Yet it's all through the Bible. And it's, it's amazing how many times I hear someone hear, you know, say these words from the Bible and say, yeah, it says fear God, but it doesn't really mean fear God. What? What do you mean by that? It, it means what it says. You fear him. All I know is that if you could get a tiny glimpse of God, you would pass out. There's a sense in which we reverence him. And you guys, this is not just respect. There's a lot of people I respect. This is talking about something that is left for God and God alone. A holy reverence, a holy fear for who he is. Why? Why should we fear God? Why why should we give him glory? Why don't I just live each day going, you know what? I want to do what I want to do. And I want to build a name for myself. I want to enjoy myself. I'm not worried about pleasing God and giving him glory. I'm thinking about pleasing myself. Why should I fear him and give him glory? Well, he explains this, because the time of judgment has come. The hour of his judgment has come. You guys, why does everyone need to fear God and give him glory? Because he's going to come one day to judge you. And you're saying, but you know what? No one else tells me I've got to fear God and give him glory. Well, no one else is going to judge you at the end either. You guys... Fear God and give him glory. This life is not about you. It's not about making a name for yourself, building up possessions for yourself. It is about there's one being right now who exists that we have to give all the glory to and fear. That's the eternal God who has saved us. And then he says, after that, he says, worship him. He says, worship, that means to to bow down or to kiss it's the idea of what you would do is, is you would get on your knees and kiss someone's feet. It says you do that to God. You stop walking around so proud and you get on your knees and you worship Him. It says worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water. You worship the one who created this earth. I have said this several times in this church. I believe it is just, it is a horrible thing we do 
when we take away the creation from God. And we say, I don't think God made it. And we come up with these ridiculous human theories that it came from nothing. Remember Wednesday night, those of you who are here, when Dr. Bookman was talking, if you weren't here, you blew it. It was incredible. Um, but he was talking about how the heavens declare the glories of God and, and how we're just talking about just, just this world we live in just screams out God. I mean, how in the world can you believe that this whole system that we live in came from nothing? And you guys, and I realize that right now the world is even wising up and you, you start reading the books lately and they're starting to disprove evolution. People don't even believe in God are questioning because of the advances in biochemistry and everything else. And so I believe evolution's on its way out, and we'll see that in our generation. But before you get so excited, I guarantee you, I promise you, something else will come along and take its place. Because it's great what people are doing to destroy evolution today, but I guarantee you something will come up. Satan will come with something else to replace it before it's gone. It's happened all the time. I mean, it just keeps advancing. And every time they disprove something, they'll come with something new. Everyone, they thought that life came from dead meat, you know, years ago. And that was in our science books. And spontaneous generation, all that stuff. They'll just come up with new stuff. And we can laugh at what was written in the, in the books, science books 20, 30 years ago. And they'll laugh at these books that are here today. But something else will come up that will take the glory away from God. And here this angel says, you start worshiping God again for his creation. He's the one that made this earth. Don't try to explain it away by saying that dust is eternal and that that grew into this. He says, you just get on your face and finally acknowledge that there is a God. As Doug said on Wednesday night, he says, you know, you really have to work hard to not believe that there's a designer to this place. You really have to work hard to deny the existence of God. Everything screams out his existence. After that angel flies by, it says another angel follows and it says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Big question, who in the world is Babylon the great? Now, in the Old Testament, we know that there actually was an empire, the empire, the Babylonian Empire. And, uh, and the Jews of that time found that empire detestable. They were their enemies. They hated the Babylonians. They hated that Babylon the Great became synonymous with the enemies of God because they were pulling the believers out of their land, Israel, and exiling them into Babylon. And so whenever they would talk about Babylon, the, 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 the empire under Nebuchadnezzar, it was just an evil, evil empire. And, uh, and so the question is, is, well, then who is this in the end times? Who represents Babylon, these enemies of God? And that's a good question. There's some different theories. Some people say Babylon the Great is the U.S. Um, they say, you know, because of its influence and its power. And, uh, you know, we get this phrase here. It says it made... Babylon the Great, which made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Okay, what's it referring to there? The maddening wine of her adulteries. Think about that phrase. It's the idea of you intoxicate someone. You get someone drunk, and then you can seduce them and take advantage of them. So somehow, some sort of world influence that basically intoxicates the world and, uh, and gets the world to follow her. And... Who that is, we don't know. Could it be the U.S. with all its power and allure, possibly? Some narrow it down more and say maybe it's Hollywood. And you've got, you know, this, this, you know, this beautiful place that in, 
that pretty much has infiltrated the whole world. And uh, everyone sees it as this beautiful, glamorous place. And what is it promoting? Everything against scripture. So people say, maybe it's that. And saying, look, all your, you know, all these uh, musicians, all these actors, actresses that everyone lifts up in such high esteem and worships, you know, for God to say, they're done now. Who are you going to worship now? Um, some people say possibly it is um, the Antichrist kingdom at that time um, where, you know, we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. You know, his kingdom that influenced the world. Maybe that's what Babylon the Great describes, that one world religion or, uh, you know, the, the, the government system possibly. Or maybe it's just a city, a city literally called Babylon right there on the Euphrates River. The truth is, is we're not sure and I don't even want to take any guesses. So there's some options. There's probably plenty more. Um, your guess is as good as mine. Actually, mine's probably a little better. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't know. You know, like I said, in, in the book of Revelation, there will be times when we go to certain things we don't quite understand. Now here, you guys, let's just stop for a second. Let me say something. These next few verses I'm about to read are, uh, are very difficult verses to read. They're not difficult to understand. They're just going to be difficult for you to hear and for me to read. But I'm going to read them. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. You guys, um, this is a pretty severe warning. It's a warning to us saying, don't you dare take the mark of the beast. The Bible explains that you won't be able to buy or sell with it without it. And the Bible also explains if you don't take the mark, you suddenly become a marked man or woman, and they will seek to kill you. But the Bible says, don't you dare take it, because if you take it, you're going to go to hell. If you take it, it says that you'll receive all of God's wrath poured out upon you. It says that you will be tormented day and night forever and ever with burning sulfur. Now, you guys, I... Um, I don't like this passage. Um, but I'm not going to cut it out of my Bible along with the other passages about this wrath of God and just say it doesn't exist. We can't just say, well, we take everything literally except for this part and this part and this part. And it's hard to believe that a God could be that angry with sin or for people worshiping the beast that he would have to torment them for eternity. And so we have a choice. Either we say, okay, well, I don't like it, but I have to believe it because that's what he says about himself. Or we say, I'll create my own God. I'll believe in one that wouldn't do something like this. And obviously that's an option. You can make up your own God and 
You can even carve out an idol and worship it. Um, But I will say this, you guys. This is why the church exists. I, I take the Bible literally. And that's why I've devoted my life to tell people, look, you've got to give your life to Jesus. There's good news. We don't have to pay for our sin. We don't have to feel God's wrath at all. And you guys, this is why we as a church cannot, listen, we cannot afford to get petty. Okay, this, ha- this has been happening over the last few weeks. It happens in every church where people start fighting and getting so fired up over the stupidest things. You guys, people are going to hell. And we're going to complain and get outraged because of the color of the carpet or because they ran out of donuts or, oh, I had to sit in the satellite room. Well, the usher forgot to give me a bulletin or he looked at me funny. You guys, get over it. Seriously. I can't believe some of the things we care about and get mad about. People are going to hell spending eternity in torment. And that's why we exist as a church. We're trying to keep people from that. And so you're going to divide the church? You're going to try to get people so angry at each other? Why? Because someone said something that hurt your feelings? Or someone didn't treat your kid just right, just perfectly the way you want them treated? Look, everyone's doing their best. But you know what? I'm going to offend you. You're going to offend me. We're all going to get angry at each other for little things. We're going to hurt each other. We've got to get past it. We've got to let go of it. Why? Because don't you see, that's exactly what Satan wants us to do, to distract us from our mission. We've got a serious, serious message to get out to the world. I mean, this is the difference between heaven and hell. We have no time to fight over stupid things. And I know as a church grows, we'll we'll, we'll attract more church people. And it blows my mind how petty church people can be. I I don't know what it is about the church, but sometimes it just attracts people who just like to complain about some of the most stupid things on the earth. And you guys, we're not going to let that happen here. We can't afford to. You guys, we've got a mission here. And so we've got to get past any offenses that we we do to each other. That's just going to happen. We're human. And we've got to embrace each other and say, we've got to get the message out. Let's not get distracted. You guys, I understand it's hard. It's hard to do the right thing. It's hard when people offend you or do something that bothers you. But you guys, we're talking about something. The cost is too high. The price. We're talking about people's eternity. And you guys, this is what we devote our lives to. This is why we exist as a church. The Bible says if you want to do what's right, it's going to take endurance. It's going to take patience, especially in the end times. I mean, it says in in verse uh, 12, it says this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It says, if you want to remain faithful to Jesus, if you want to obey God's commands, it says, it's going to take incredible patience and perseverance, meaning it's going to be tough. Patient endurance if you want to obey God's commands. And that's true right now. You guys, 
this verse right here flies in the face of all the people who have sat in my office and said, well, God wouldn't want me to do that because that would make me unhappy. You guys, God is telling the people here, you don't dare take that mark, even if it means you starve to death, even if it means you die. Don't dare take that mark. You obey me, and it's difficult to obey me. And how many times have I been told, well, God wouldn't want me to stay in this family because it's making me unhappy, and God wants me happy. You guys, God says here, I want you to obey me even if it kills you. Even if you have to watch your family starve to death, don't dare take that mark. And there's no happiness clause here. Then say, well, unless it makes you unhappy, then you don't have to obey me. That's a one excuse. You guys, God's never said that. Where did we get that from? You guys, if there's an almighty being who created me, then I just submit to him. I just do what he says. The beautiful thing about that is that God says, I love you. And you can trust me that I'm only going to ask you to do what is good for you. And that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. And always make you happy, but you've got to trust me. And then he gives us a reward. And the reward is verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. He kind of gives you the total contrast. Compared to those who are suffering with no rest for all of eternity, he says, but those who will die in my name, those who die in the Lord from now on, he says, blessed are they. He says, because they're going to rest from all of that hurt, from all of that pain. They're going to receive rest. And not only that, but their deeds are going to follow them. All the good things they've done on this earth, all the perseverance they did for me, it says that they're going to receive the reward for that. It's the same thing Jesus has been saying in the scriptures when he says, look, whatever you sacrifice for me here on earth, I'll reward you a hundredfold. I'll reward you, I promise you. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, our light and our momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. He says, whatever you suffer here on earth, you're going to be rewarded so much more there in heaven. And that's what this angel's proclaiming. Peace. It's saying, man, you're going to get rest. All that hard work, one day we're going to look back and say, wow, it was worth it. I don't have to suffer anymore. It's not hard to be a Christian once you get to heaven. It's not hard. You don't have to suffer anything. You just get rest. And it says that you will reap the rewards. All your deeds will follow you there. And then it goes on in verse 14 and talks about the return of Christ. It says, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now, the Bible says when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to come seated on a cloud. You read about that in Daniel 7 and, and in uh, Matthew 24. And here he is. He comes down on a cloud with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap. Because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. You guys know what a sickle is? It's, you know, a big stick with a sharp thing on it. 
and, it, and they would use it for a harvesting. And the picture here is when Christ returns, that's what he's coming to do, to harvest the earth. And there's a question as to whether maybe right now he's in this picture he's harvesting the believers and taking them out from the earth, or is he harvesting unbelievers um, because the picture of the sharp sickle. And uh, there's difficulties in both, but uh, I, I believe he's harvesting the unbelievers. Um, it could be the believers here. But uh, the next verse, the next few verses when it talks about the other angel makes it obvious that that angel for sure, we don't question that, that he is harvesting the unbelievers. If you read verse 17, and again, you guys just know that what you're about to read is, uh, is pretty gross. Verse 17, it says, Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into a great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's 200 miles. Okay, so there's a, there's a pretty gross analogy here. Um, and the analogy is this. You've got a wine press. And let me describe what a wine press would look like in that day. You, maybe you guys have seen them. It would be a big stone... And it would be carved, it'd just be carved into this, just this big basin, huge basin. And now on the bottom of that basin, there would be a channel or a duct that would come from it to a lower basin. Now, what would happen in this upper basin is they would toss all of the grapes that they would reap. And they would throw them in this, this huge wine press. And then what they would do is they would have people jump up on top of there and start stomping on the grapes. You guys have seen that. Um, that's the picture that goes on. And what happens is these people are stomping on the grapes. The juice flows out the bottom into this lower basin. And that's where we get the, the wine or the grape juice. And so the picture here is as these people are stomping, the juice is jumping up onto their garments, under their feet. And it was a picture of judgment because it's saying what flowed out of this wine press was not grape juice. But it was blood. And picture what John is seeing. He's seeing blood coming out. So much blood that it would raise up to a horse's bridle for 200 miles. Just pure blood. Just a disgusting bloodbath describing this time of judgment. You guys, it is so tempting right now to apologize for God's wrath and say, well, you know, he's, he's really not that bad. You guys, God's judgment is perfect. And I'm not going to apologize for it. Um, it doesn't sit well with me, to be honest with you. I don't like reading this passage. I don't like thinking about this passage. It grosses me out. But I don't dare say, God, something is wrong with you. 
I say, God, something's wrong with me. Okay, you understand that? God is perfectly right. He is perfectly just in his blessings. We don't ever say, God, there's something wrong with you to bless the earth that much. Something wrong with you to send your son to die for me. But we do. When it comes to his justice and his hatred for sin, we say, God, I I don't want to believe that. But you guys, God is perfect. And this is his perfect wrath. Now, people have asked me what caused me to become a Christian when I was a teenager. They say, well, did you feel an emptiness? Because I was a teenager, I didn't feel any emptiness. I'm not, I'm not saying you couldn't, but I didn't. I didn't feel the void. And I know some of you have come to know the Lord because you felt an emptiness, a void, something that was missing in your life, and that's very valid, and that can happen. But I'm just going to be honest with you guys. The reason why I came to the Lord may not sound real beautiful, but it's because I didn't want to go to hell. And that's the truth. I heard the truth of what God was like, his wrath and his love, and it freaked me out. And I'll remember, I I totally remember calling my youth pastor in the middle of the night, waking him up and saying, Stan, look, I'm freaked out. Um, I don't know if I were to die today or tonight while I'm sleeping that I would go to heaven. And I definitely don't want to go to hell. And he just talked to me on the phone and told me what it meant to be a Christian and just making sure that I really had given my life to him, that I really was following him. I remember the peace that I had. I was like, okay, I really do believe. I know right now that I I love Jesus Christ and I'm trying to serve him. Now, some of you are saying, well, what about the guy who's out in the jungle that's never heard about Jesus, you know what? Let's focus on yourself for a second. We'll talk to the guy in the jungle when we get there. You know? I mean, why do we always go there? Why don't we just think about you? Did you see that Satan? Right now, forget about everyone else and just say you. You personally have offended God. You personally have done things that God absolutely hates. But God loves you personally and he sent his son to die for you and he says follow my son believe in my son now have you decided to follow his son do you believe that he sent his son to die for you or will you today say I'm not ready to follow him yet And I understand. I've talked to people in this room, people in this church who have said to me, I'm just not ready to give up some of the things in my life yet. And I know that becoming a Christian, following Jesus, means I need to turn from my sin and try to follow him. But I'm not ready to give these things up yet because I still love them. My question to you is this. Do you love him so much that you're willing to go to hell for those things? Do you love it that much? You want your pride so much that you're you're willing to go to hell for it? You guys, I'm not trying to sound like some old-time fire and brimstone preacher. I just don't know how else to preach this passage. And maybe we need some more of that preaching nowadays. Because the truth is, is that's what changed me around. And that's what motivates me to a holy life. 
is not just focusing on the blessings, but focusing on the consequences. Isn't that human nature anyways? We only do what's right because we're scared of the consequences. And what Satan wants to do is to get the world to stop preaching about the consequences. Don't talk about the future. Because I have, um, I have never been so sure of anything in my life than that Jesus Christ died for me. And that is the good news. And I hope that you have truly come to a relationship with him. If you have never offered your life to God, I'm going to invite you to do that today. We're going to take an offering, but don't worry about the money. That's so secondary. The issue is you offering your life to God. And if you've never done that, if you come to, you've never come to a point where you know that you've come before God and said, God, I believe in you, and I want to follow your son, Jesus Christ, and I'm willing to turn away from my sin and everything else. You just empower me to follow you. If you're not sure you've ever done that, I invite you to do that this morning. Pastor Doug Fox will be in the back. And as Rachel sings, just feel free to get up and just go and pray with him. Um, He'll have some others back there to pray with you. Do what I did with my youth pastor. just said, whatever. You know, I just need to know today. Let's pray. Father, I... uh, I confess that there is sin in my life and I confess that there are times when I read your word and I don't uh, just stand behind it wholeheartedly. There's hesitancy, God, when I read passages like this because I know how powerful you are and how awful your judgment is. But God, this morning we just say we believe in you. We believe that it is good, it is right, everything you do is perfect and that you would open our minds and help us to understand why it is that we have such a hard time with some of these things. God, I pray for those who have not yet given their lives to you that this morning they would do that, that they would realize whatever they're holding on to is not worth it. You are greater than anything this world has to offer. And so, Father, help us truly just to surrender our lives to you during the next few moments. Just surrender everything we own, everything we are, and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name. You see, in the end times, there will be people who will refuse to surrender to God. All the way to the end, they're going to fight against God and say, God, you are not allowed to judge the earth. And they'll refuse to surrender and just submit to this God and say, you know what? You're allowed to do whatever you want. And I'm just going to come up under you and submit to you and follow you and trust you. Gosh, I pray that you've done that. You guys, I... My prayers is that no one leaves here today or the satellite room without being sure that if they were to die today, because we're not guaranteed we'll be back here the next weekend. No one's guaranteed that. I just want you to be sure that you would know that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. And that's why this church exists. And so if you need to talk to someone, if you're in the satellite room, Tim and some others will be in the back of the room as you leave. Here you've got Doug, Richard, and and, uh, and, and there'll be a few others, too, back here just to pray for you. Um, and even if this week you start listening to the word and you start remembering some of these words and you start maybe doing what I did, feeling like you need to call someone, feel free to call the church. Um, if it's in the middle of the night, doesn't matter. Feel free to call Doug. Um, <laughs> I'm actually going to be out of town this week. So seriously, I mean, call and talk to Doug. Or whoever. You guys, this is, this is serious stuff, though. Um, 
And uh, if some of you guys came here hoping for a good flowery message today that leaves you on this happy thoughts, um, you guys, the Word of God doesn't always leave you that way. It just doesn't. Sometimes it does. Sometimes we leave rejoicing. Other times we see the severity of what God says, and it motivates us to live holy lives. And I pray that that's what it does for you. And we'll see you next week.